Hi, this is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We are a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Well, thank you for being here today. I see a sea of green out there. You didn't forget what today is. I did. I didn't. don't have a stitch of green on, but uh, it is St. Patrick's Day. And I'm so glad you've come and begun your week like this. It's going to change everything about the week that you were in God's house this day. And I am so thrilled. Can't tell you how thrilled I am to be back home at First Baptist Church of Suffolk. I tell pastors, if you ever get uh, depressed, if you ever question whether you're in the right field of work, if you ever wonder about your call, go back to where it happened. Go back to where it all started and renew that faith. And over the years, occasionally when I'm in Suffolk, I will, I will come into this room. Nobody's here, but I'll come and just sit there and renew the promises made a long, long time ago. My faith was formed here. Everything that I am, everything that I believe, started right here. I met Christ as my Savior right here. Uh, God called me to preach on a youth choir mission trip from this church. I was ordained here. And so, so many significant things have happened. When I was a teenager, I sat right where your pastor Thurman is sitting right now, just 14 years old, with a Bible and a piece of paper, and I would take notes on the pastor. I'd take notes on his sermon outline. I'd listen. I learned how to take notes in school by taking notes at First Baptist Church. It's where I learned the Bible. It's where I learned how to preach. And if I missed a point, I'd tell the pastor at the door, and he would reach in his Bible and pull out his notes and just give them to me to go home and uh, transcribe them in my own sermon notebook. I've still got them. And uh, occasionally in a pinch, I'll pull that down off the shelf and preach one of them. Because they still preach. And I was given opportunities to preach when I was just a teenager. I, I preached my first sermon when I was 16. And I was pastor at 19 of a little Baptist church. And people ask me, how did you get started so young? And I tell them, it's because of you. You were willing to trust the pulpit to a long-haired kid. And, uh, and I, sometimes I shudder at the things I said in those days. The things I preached with such authority. But... But I was learning, and you were patient, and I thank you. Pearl Howard, I don't know if you remember her, a dear old lady. She's been in heaven so long now. But she taught a ladies, senior adult ladies class, and every now and then she'd call on me to be the guest teacher. I was 16 years old. She'd hand me the quarterly. I'd go in there. I'd throw the quarterly down. I didn't care what the lesson was about. I was Billy Graham. I was going to preach on... Uh, on uh, the gospel, and I preached, I warned them about the dangers of alcohol, and I, I preached fervently about the dangers of premarital sex, and here these, here these ladies sitting there, and their eyes just getting, they weren't thinking about any of that until I mentioned it, and, but that's where I learned, and I'm so grateful. I regret that the uh, baptistry is all covered up, and I know why it is, and you'll see it again, but I wanted to see uh, the picture that hangs in the baptistry. Because when I was sitting there all those years ago, uh, occasionally I would look up from the preacher, I'd look over his head at that picture of Jesus standing at the door and knocking. It's called Jesus the Light of the World. The original hangs in St. Paul's in London. 
And my faith, really, part of it was formed not only listening to sermons, but looking at that picture of Jesus wanting to come into our hearts. For the last seven and a half years, I've been pastor of First Baptist Church of Alexandria, which I love. Uh, We have a picture of Jesus in our baptistry, but it's not the same one. It's a different picture. But that picture, Christ at the door, is in the back of the balcony. And so I'm still looking at it every Sunday when I stand up to preach. And it encourages me to keep the gospel clear and to keep it simple. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him. Well, we're going to have a fun time this week. I am just so looking forward to this study. The, the, the greatest week in history, the Passion of Christ as recorded in Luke. Now, all four Gospels have the story, but they all tell it a little differently. They don't contradict each other, but they tell it differently. And the temptation we're going to have this week is to try to say everything all the Gospels say about every event. And I'm going to resist that temptation And we're going to stick as best we can with Luke and what he has to say. So today we're going to be in Luke chapter 19. Why don't you turn there? Luke 19. And uh, I hope you're coming back tonight. And so this afternoon, if you get a chance, read chapter 20. We've got to move fast, and it will be helpful if you've done a little reading before you get here. I will honor your time. Here's my promise. I know we got March Madness, and I know you got school tomorrow and work tomorrow and all the rest. I'll honor your time. We're going to start on time and finish, and I'll let you go so we won't belabor it. So you give us that hour tonight and see if God doesn't bless. I heard about a preacher that was famous for preaching exactly 20 minutes every time. Now, I'll go a little longer than that, but he was famous for preaching 20 minutes. You could time your watch by him. Somebody asked him once, how do you do that? There's no clocks in the room. How do you do it? He said, well, here's my secret. Just before I get up to preach, I reach in my pocket and I pull out a certs and I put it in the corner of my mouth. I know that it takes exactly 20 minutes for that to dissolve. And when it's gone, I quit. Even if I'm in mid-syllable, I quit. Well, one Sunday he got up to preach, reached in his pocket, pulled it out, popped it in his mouth, and he started preaching. He went 20 minutes and didn't stop. 25 minutes, people are noticing it. 30 minutes, people are getting restless. They're looking at their watches. They're shaking their watches. At 45 minutes, some people are leaving. And the preacher, we see everything that happens out there, so the preacher sees it. He turns around and coughs into his hand, and there's a button there. (laughs) It wasn't a mint at all. It was just a button. He'd have gone all day if he hadn't done that. We will honor your time. Luke chapter 19. Now this is going to be a little confusing for you because this is, this is Palm Sunday. But you know Palm Sunday's next week. So we're, going to, we're kind of getting you all turned around here. Next Sunday when you come to church, it'll be in celebration of what we're reading about today. But we wouldn't call it Palm Sunday if all we had was Luke. Because there are no palm branches... In Luke's account, no hosannas. We get that in another gospel. Let's read what he has to say. Chapter 19, verse 28. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. 
And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found just as he had been told to them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Hey, why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. And that was good enough. It's interesting, isn't it? You, you wouldn't have done that. You've seen somebody walking off with your bicycle or driving off with your car. You'd say, Hey, excuse me, what, what are you doing? But maybe this was prearranged. Maybe Jesus had already worked it out. But I love what the disciples say. The Lord needs it, and that settled it. What does the Lord need today from you and from me? Are we that willing to just give it up simply because the Lord needs it? Verse 35, they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. This crowd has been growing as they've been moving uh, down toward Jerusalem. Everybody, everybody's heading to Passover. So it's just kind of a crowd that gets bigger and bigger. And these people have seen Jesus' miracles with loud voices. They cry out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. I've entitled uh, this study today, The Red Carpet Treatment. Sure looks like that's what Jesus is getting, isn't it? The red carpet treatment. He's coming into town and he's the... Uh, He's the toast of the town as he comes riding in on the back of a donkey. Did you see the uh, Oscars a few weeks ago, the Academy Awards? There were a lot of great films this year, and so I, I wanted to see it, but I, I didn't remember what time the program began, so I settled in with my popcorn and drink a little early, and I watched an hour and a half of the celebrities arriving. That's pretty boring, isn't it? The, the stars arriving on the red carpet and they'd be interviewed and they were in their shimmering dresses, Armani and Versace and just so beautiful and George Clooney with his nice beard and everybody with, with smiles that would blind you if you stared at them too long. Just beautiful, beautiful people. The red carpet. What if Jesus had come to the Academy Awards and He stepped out? I mean, He has credits. Jesus Christ Superstar, the Passion of the Christ, the robe Ben-Hur. He has credits. But he'd be wearing something simple, a simple tunic. And he wouldn't have gotten off of a white stallion or out of a golden carriage. He, he was riding a donkey. If you envision this as the red carpet treatment, you might misunderstand what's really going on. We don't have time to read it. But read the parable Jesus tells just before this moment. And it's an altogether different image. This is really not so much a triumphal entry. That's what we call it. But it is more a death march. Because He's on His way to the cross. Here's my question for us today. I want you to think with me about this. What if Jesus came to Suffolk? 
I know he's coming back one day. I'm not talking about that. I'm, I'm talking about just coming to town like he came to Jerusalem. What if Jesus were to come riding into Suffolk? What would he do? And what would we do? That's more important, I suppose. What would we do if Jesus were to come to Suffolk? First of all, I know we would welcome him. We would welcome him, but I'm not sure we would know who he really is. Everybody has an opinion about Jesus. Everybody thinks something about him, at least in our Western culture. His name is known, but everybody's got their own ideas about him. And some of them are quite wild and out there, but they say, that's Jesus. And Jesus really does belong to the, to the world. I mean, everybody has their right, I suppose, to their own ideas. But what does the Bible say about him? We take our cue from the Bible. We understand Jesus from the Bible and our experience with him. I'm not sure if he came to Suffolk, the people, most of the people, would know who they know he's important. I mean, they, they'd be on the street, there'd be a parade, but would they really know who he is? There were a lot of uh, great entrances into the city that week. I mean, uh, a lot of folks were coming to town. A lot of famous people were coming to town. Pilate came to town. Pilate didn't live in Jerusalem, he lived in Caesarea. He's the Roman governor. He's not Jewish either, but he was there because this was Passover week. The city's population would swell by a quarter million people, extra people, because every Jewish male had to come to Passover if he possibly could. So, so, so many are there. So Pilate figured he better be there too because Jerusalem has been under Roman domination for a hundred years and they didn't like it one bit. And there were always zealots, revolutionaries running around like, uh, like uh, well, you've heard some of their names, Barabbas and others. Always people like that fomenting revolution. So Pilate knew, I better get down there to quell the masses. When you saw Pilate, he was there to kind of say, don't even think about it. Don't even think about revolution. He would come in on a white stallion, signifying great power. But he wasn't the only one that was there. Herod Antipas, the king, he would come to Passover and when he came, it'd be in a royal carriage, signifying great wealth. People were used to dignitaries arriving. Who's coming in today? Who's next? There's Pilate. There's Herod. Here's somebody coming in, and he's riding a donkey. A donkey. Now, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, said that when Messiah comes, he will come into the city riding a donkey, that was a messianic promise, but people didn't. They didn't remember that. If they saw a guy coming in in a donkey, they would ask themselves, is he the one that's going to defeat Caesar? Riding a donkey? It was just, it was just so against the grain. The Catholics got a new pope this week. The cardinal selected and the world now embraces Francis I. And he's so different, so different. Instead of the regal robes and the gold, he dresses humbly. He rides a bicycle. Uh, first day as Pope, he, he left the Vatican in a car, just a common car, drove to the hotel he'd been staying in, paid the clerk himself, and collected his clothes to go back to the Vatican. He's going to be a different sort of guy. Jesus comes in as a different sort of Messiah. 
The disciples take off their cloaks and lay them down before him, and they're probably little more than burlap sacks. They're not wealthy people. But they give what they have. They take off what they have and they lay it before him, which makes me wonder too, do we give him everything we have? The best, whatever it is, the best that we have. Well, they do, and they lay it before him, and he comes riding in. The people begin singing in verse 38. They're singing a coronation hymn from Psalm 118, verse 26. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they add a a line, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. What does that sound like? Glory in the highest. Sounds like Christmas. Luke's account of Christmas in Luke chapter 2. Glory in the highest on, on earth. Peace, goodwill toward men. Jesus is coming to bring all of that about. Well, the people are excited. Look at verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Stop them from doing this. Now, you know the Pharisees. We don't like Pharisees very much, and they really, we ought to be kinder to them. Pharisees were very good people. There were only a few thousand at any single time in Israel's history, and they were the best of the best. You wouldn't mind having some Pharisees as members of you. Maybe you do have some Pharisees in the church. You'll know them because they, they tithe double. They, they live scrupulously by the law. They're very strict, can be a little judgmental. But those were the Pharisees. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt in this moment. When they say, Jesus, stop them, they might have been looking out for Jesus. They might have been saying, hey, Jesus, stop that. You're going to get in trouble here. Pilate's in town. Herod Antipas is in town. They're singing a coronation hymn to you. You you better stop this for your own good. Or maybe they were concerned for the whole city. You're going to bring down the heavy boot of Rome on all of us. Please stop this. But I don't really think that's what's going on. Though outwardly they were impeccable, on the inside they were filled with dead men's bones. Inside they were open sepulchers. And they hate Jesus. And we're going to see as the week goes on why they hate Him so much. But they do. And they consider this blasphemy that people would, oh, who do you think you are? You think you're God or something? And of course He is. Make them stop. And look at what Jesus says. I tell you, Jesus replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. If I make them stop, the the stones will start praising. What's he mean by that? Could just be a figure of speech, like we say, uh, if these walls could talk, what would they say? It's like when Cain killed his brother Abel and God came into the garden And he said, the blood of your brother Abel is crying out to me. Or in James, when when James says, the wages, the fair wages, you didn't pay the workers in your field, are crying out to me. Or in Habakkuk chapter 2, when the prophet talks about the stones in the temple crying out against the sins of Babylon. It could be a figure of speech. Or Jesus might have meant it quite literally. The stones will actually worship. If I asked you, 
What does salvation mean? What does it mean to be saved? What is the gospel? I know you could answer the question. Nothing's changed about that around here. You could answer the question. You give a good Baptist answer. What does it mean to be saved? What is the gospel? Well, I repent of my sin. I give my life to Christ. I believe He died for me, was buried and rose again, and I receive the gift of eternal life. And I'm going to heaven when I die. That's the gospel. And every word of that's true. But that's not all the gospel. The total gospel is that when Adam and Eve fell in the garden, all creation fell with They took everything down with them. The whole universe. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that ever since then, all creation has been in bondage, waiting for the salvation of the children of God so that all creation might be liberated too. The total gospel is one day God wants to bring all creation together. And so even inanimate objects like rocks have a stake in this. The Grand Canyon cares about this. Niagara Falls cares about it. Maui out in Hawaii cares about it. The the Alps in Switzerland care about it. All these beautiful places in the world that you can picture. If you look at the bottom right-hand corner of the picture, you'll see God's initials. Because He painted every one of them. He made it. He created it. And one day, it's all going to be restored. Just imagine what it's going to be restored to, as beautiful as it is now. All creation has a stake in what Jesus is there to do. So, Jesus says, if I make the people stop, the stones will cry out. I don't know how it is around here, Thurman. I I tried to see, but I know at my place... On uh, Sunday, sometimes I'll look out at the people. Sometimes I'll come up on the platform while they're singing, just so I can kind of see who's here, kind of get aimed and ready for the sermon, you know. And uh, I'll notice while we're singing that some people just stand there, and they don't open their mouths at all. We project the words just like you do. The words are there, but they just stand there very stoically. It always saddens me a little bit. You know, maybe they will, they will say, well, I can't sing. My wife punches me. She tells me to be quiet. Even the minister of music told me to stop singing, you know, because I throw everybody off. They give me all kinds of excuses. But I love to see people trying to sing. At least open your mouth. I don't want a rock or some inanimate object to have to do what God put me here to do. And that is to praise Him, to make a joyful noise unto the Lord. If Jesus came to Suffolk, we'd welcome Him all right. But would we welcome Him for who He is? I found that there are people, maybe you're one of them, there are people who who enjoy anticipating something more than they enjoy the actual arrival of something. They just like looking forward to something more than it actually ever happening. Christmas is an example. I'm I'm going to just confess to you, my least favorite day of the Christmas season is Christmas Day itself. I don't know why. I love the Sundays of Advent leading up to it. I love, absolutely love Christmas Eve, candlelight service, all the rest of it. But Christmas Day, I'm always a little let down. Because I see that tree and it just looks like another job to me now. You know, I put it up, but now I've got to take it down and everything back in the box and all of that. It just becomes wearisome. I'm ready for it to be packed up. I'm ready to get on with life. I look forward to it until it comes. 
And the whole nation Israel is looking forward to the Messiah coming. They're all united in that. But when he actually shows up riding a donkey, he wasn't exactly what they were expecting. That's why the crowd turns. He wasn't what they expected. And everybody today has an idea about Jesus until they find out who He really is and what He really demands of us. And then they begin to drop off. They don't want to follow Him. Because when Jesus calls a person, He he bids him to come and die, Bonhoeffer said. So true. We'd welcome Him. But would we really know who He is? Well, look at the next verse, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls, They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. We know that Jesus cried, don't we? I mean, we know that the Bible tells us, just describing His heart, we know He had a tender heart, but we just don't see many concrete examples of it. We know that He cried at the tomb of Lazarus. Shortest verse in the New Testament, Jesus wept. And we see it happen here. He's not just sniffling, dabbing his eyes. He's sobbing. Loud wails. As he looks over the city, he weeps. If Jesus came to Suffolk, I think he would also weep. Now, the city's caught up in a very festive mood. It's like St. Patrick's Day. It's like Mardi Gras. It's, uh, it's an exciting, festive time because so many people are in the city. There's, a, there's an electric feeling in town. You're seeing people you haven't seen all year. You're hugging people. You're enjoying one another's company. It's so exciting. And Jesus is standing there sobbing. Why is He crying? Because He knows the people in their great festive mood have no idea what's coming. Jesus knows what they don't know. He knows that in 40 years, of a short 40 years, the entire city is going to be leveled. In the summer of A.D. 70, Jerusalem will be destroyed by Titus the Roman. The people don't know it, but it's coming. And this is going to be their moment. This is their opportunity for God's visitation. And they're going to let it pass. They're going to let it slip away. If Jesus were to come to Suffolk, I think He would weep over this city because it would be missing its moment. Maybe this is the moment. The moment for God to really do something. Through this church, through your new pastor. Some great thing to be done. And if you miss it, then you've missed it for a generation or you've missed it forever. Jesus weeps. Now, the history books would later say that what happened in A.D. 70 is that some religious zealots fomented revolution. They they led a civil war, a war against Rome, and they were soundly defeated. That's what the history books will say. But Jesus knows the real reason. It's because they would not accept Him. They turned away from God and they lost their moment. 
What do you cry about? What brings a, a tear to your eyes? I mean, somebody dies on Downton Abbey, some, some person you liked dies, or your soap opera character dies, or your team loses. Does it bring a tear to your eye? We, we cry about so many things. It's good to cry. Men cry. Women cry. Children cry. It's all right. But what did Jesus cry about? He cried about death. He cried about people living in darkness and living in rebellion. I want to cry about the things Jesus cried about. I want my heart to break over the things that broke His. And that's what I pray for myself, that He'll give me a tender heart. And I pray that for you, that we will cry over those same things. Well, look at the next verse, verse 45. Then He entered the temple the temple area. When you were coming to the city as a dignitary, there were certain places you'd always go. It's still true. You know, a foreign dignitary comes to our country. They go to the tomb of the unknown soldier. When our president goes to Europe or some other country, he will go to significant places and lay a wreath somewhere. They're just places you go. In Jerusalem, the place to go was the temple. Alexander the Great went there in 321, and everybody would go. And so Jesus goes. He goes to the temple. And He began to drive out those that were selling. It is written, He said to them, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. He's quoting two passages there. When He says, My house shall be a house of prayer, He's quoting Isaiah 56, verse 7. But he didn't quote it completely according to Luke. That The total reference is, this shall be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. And now he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. Well, that's significant. And if, if they knew their Bibles, they would have caught what he just did. This is not so much a cleansing of the temple as it is a cursing of the temple, because he's quoting Jeremiah 7, which was a sermon against the temple because of the sins of the people. What did God intend for the temple to be? A house of prayer for all nations. We'll talk more about the temple this week. Some say it was built on 35-acre plot of land, and it was, it was bigger and more elaborate and more beautiful than uh, Solomon's temple. So it was, it, was, it was a grand place, but it had different sections in it. And there were places some people could go that others couldn't. There was a place where only the priests could go. There was another place where only the Jewish men could go. There was a place where women could go. And then the outermost section was called the court of the Gentiles. And that's where you could go. You're not Jewish, but you, you want to find out about God. You're, you're, inter you're a God-fearer or a God-seeker. So you could go to the court of the Gentiles. That's where the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8 went looking for God. But he's now on the road back home. Having He was able to buy a copy of Isaiah there, but nobody could explain it to him. So he's got all these questions. You know that story. The court of the Gentiles. This is where Jesus is standing in this moment. Because in the court of the Gentiles, that's where all the merchants were set up. First of all, when you came to Passover, you had to bring with you for sacrifice 
an unblemished lamb, a perfect lamb. Now, you might have one way back home, but you don't want to risk a journey with it, and maybe you don't have one at all, but you need one when you get to town, so you decide, I'll just wait till I get to Jerusalem, and I'll buy one there, and then I don't have to keep up with it for 200 miles on the road. So they get to Jerusalem. It's now Passover. Got to have the lamb. And they're in a hurry. And right there in the temple, somebody's willing to sell them a lamb. And the merchants know this is your last chance. And so they jack up the price. They gouge you. They take advantage of you. And you have a tax to pay, the temple tax. Now, you you have a denarius in your pocket That's the uh, coin with Caesar's picture on it. But you can't spend that in the temple. That goes against the Jewish faith. No images. So you would have to take your money and exchange it. Like when you go to Europe from dollars into euros or whatever. You've got to exchange the money so you can spend it. They would change from denarius into shekels. And here are the money changes. And they keep the exchange rate very, very high because they know you've got to have it. So, you're a Gentile, you're looking for God, as far as you can go is the the court of the Gentiles, you get there, but you can't hear anything for all the hawking and the selling and sales and people spinning signs around, distracting you, and you leave with your heart empty. That's what breaks Jesus' heart. This is to be a house of prayer for all nations, Gentiles too, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And there are always people trying to do that with religion. There are always people trying to make a fast buck off of it, off of gullible people, taking from them. It's age old, and it was happening in Jesus' day, and he despises it. So he kicks them out. It'll be a house of prayer. But actually, he knows the days of the temple are over. It's obsolete. In 40 years, it's going to be gone. But it's already going to be obsolete in about a week when Jesus dies on the cross and the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom so that anybody, you, can go straight in to the presence of God. He's claiming authority over the temple. The next chapter, we'll see it tonight. First thing they want to know is, who gave you the right to do this? Well, his father gave him the right, and he exercised it. We still have a temple, actually, not in Jerusalem, but according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, this church is the temple of God. Not the building, but you could count the building, too. You you have a lovely, lovely building, so important in my life. But I'm talking about the church, First Baptist Church. You are a temple of God in this city. And 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, your body is a temple. The Holy Spirit's chosen to live in you. When you gave your heart to Christ, you said, Jesus, come in. Well, the Spirit of Jesus came to live in your heart, and now you've been bought with a price. You belong to Him. Glorify God in your body. So you take care of what you eat and what you drink and how you exercise and all the rest, because God lives in you. What if Jesus came to Suffolk today? We'd welcome Him, but let's welcome Him for who He is. And if you've never received Him, acknowledged Him, not just as a man, not just as a teacher or a moral leader, but as God in human flesh, welcome Him today in your heart. And begin to have a heart like His, 
for the things that matter. And listen to his warning about the things that are temporal and the things that are eternal. Let's pray together. Would you bow, please? We're going to sing in a moment. Your pastor is going to stand right at the front of this aisle. And if there's somebody today that would like to welcome Jesus into her heart, why don't you come and let the pastor know? If you're ready today to join this great church, and I sure would if I lived in Suffolk, you come and he'll gladly receive you. If you need prayer, come and you can pray with him or kneel here at the altar. Let God work in your life. Father, speak to us all now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this service at First Baptist Church. We hope you've been strengthened in your faith. We want to encourage you to visit our website at fbcsuffolk.org for more information about the church and about following Jesus. God bless you today.